0: Welcome to Life Center Church. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about this podcast and our church, visit LifeCenterNYC.com. Pray us again, and we're going to jump in. So, Father, I just thank you for. Today, thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are in this place. Thank you, Lord, that you are moving in our midst. I thank you, Father, just for the healing that's already taken place, Lord. I thank you for the words that you've deposited in our hearts already. I thank you, Father, for the chains that have already been broken And I thank you, Father, you're encouraging and strengthening us today in our inner man to engage with the living God who died and bled, whose body was broken, that ours may be made whole, that we may be cleansed and purified by the blood of the lamb. And so I testify today to your goodness. And I I pray, Holy Spirit, would you move um, through my words and through your word? Holy Spirit, come and have your way today in Jesus name. Amen. All right. I'm excited to, to be sharing today. Um, I want to pick up what I was working through in uh, the book, or in the month of May. We're going through the book of 1 Timothy. So I'm going to jump back in to 1 Timothy chapter 1 today. But before I do, um, I want to share with you a little story. I got to go on a, a daddy-daughter camp out this weekend, which is super fun. And I don't get to camp enough. I'm a campy guy. If you get around me, I like the outdoors. Um, and, you know, we were, uh, Fern and I went on our camp trip together. She's eight years old. And so we, we rented a little canoe, and we had our canoe. And let me tell you, like, we were, it was a kayak rather than not a canoe, but we were faster than every other, like, even, like, two adults. Like, me and an eight-year-old would dominate you on the water. Like, we had it going on. We were, like, flying past people. I was like, yeah, you see what we're doing? Like we're in sync. And so. So anyway, we were kayaking around, having a ball yesterday and uh, we roll up on this sailboat. And so it's a big lake that we were on. There's like motorboats and sailboats and everything. And Fern, being ambitious, she's definitely my child, is like, hey, like, let's go and like catch that sailboat. So like, yeah, let's do it. So we're rowing and we're rowing. And we're making a little progress, but don't you know, like the wind all of a sudden picked up, and then, uh, and then our alas, we were we were we were eluded um, from capturing this sailboat as it whisked right past us. And we kept trying, you know, because we were ambitious and a little naive. Um, but we clearly like were not able to to overcome uh, the power of the wind that was moving this boat past us. So I said, Fern, you know that was ambitious, but we're we're kind of like working with oars, and they have a huge sail. And, and the Lord began speaking to me, even as I was telling her this, like, yeah, like, I, I, this is what it looks like to live a life that's powered by works, your paddles, versus a life that's powered by grace, your sails. And I was like, oh, okay, like, now we got a little, all right, Lord, like, speak to me more, like, what, what's, what, what is this all about? And, and the Lord was saying, well, you know, with works, it's all about the effort you can put forward, right? this fast as you're going to go is as fast as you can paddle, not only that, with works, when your life is powered by your works, you are in the driver's seat, you decide where you want to go, and you can steer wherever you want, but you're gonna burn out trying to get there. Now, if a life that's based on the grace of God, first of all, you're you're powered by Him. You're powered, you're you're just putting the sail up trying to catch what He's doing. And but when you catch what He's doing, you lose control of where you get to go. And so that's the tricky part of being empowered by his grace is that you may end up somewhere you don't want to (laughs) go i never wanted to be in this city and here we are but i think you probably can relate to giving up your giving up your right to have to power everything right you're not going to burn out but when you give it to him he can steer you and move you any way he pleases and his word, what I was talking, his word, what is guides and directs you. His spirit, but his spirit moves on his word. And so, if you don't have that going on in your life, you're going to be living a life worth, of works, 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 and you're going to burn out. You're going to be feeling like my shoulders feel this morning, and that is hurting. Um, so, anyway, we're going to jump right into First Timothy because I am going to relate that today to what we're talking about. Paul is writing to Timothy in the book of Timothy. And just to give, give you a little context, if you could put on the screen the first slide. Timothy has been placed in the Ephesian church. So he's in the city of Ephesus, which is a highly important city um, for that, or the church in Ephesus is really important. It's located in Asia Minor. It was a huge city for trade and was very wealthy, it was a center for idol worship. They had seen mighty moves of God in this city. Read Acts 19, read Acts 20. We're talking massive outpourings of God, massive numbers of people getting healed and saved. And so the church there was very established and very prominent. But what had happened, and this is prophesied in the book of Acts as well, Acts 20, is false doctrine had gotten into the church. It seeped in this important church. And Paul is saying, Timothy, my spiritual son, go to Ephesus and clean this up. And so it's not an easy task, and it seems like Timothy probably didn't even want to go, um, but he was a faithful son to his spiritual father, Paul, and he went into this volatile situation knowing that reform was needed. So this book is a letter from Paul to Timothy, so we're essentially reading Timothy's mail today because his mail has become doctrine, or his mail has become um, part of the canon, which we believe is the word of God and is infallible. So Going to the next slide. How is Timothy structured? We have the opening commission. We're going to cover more of that today in chapter 1. Then you got chapter 2 through 6, which are instruction and correction for the church and structure for the church, the closing commission. And within this book, there are these three poems. We're going to read one today, and they basically conclude each section, and they talk about how Jesus is the king of the world. And so they're they're beautifully, they're just kind of sprinkled in there, but you see that theme all throughout the book of Timothy. So I'm going to start out with 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. So if you turn with me, we're just going to be reading right through the chapter, um, starting at chapter 1, verse 8. And it says this, We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious. So these are. this is a rough group to be a part of here. you got lawbreakers and rebels, ungodly and sinful, unholy and irreligious. But essentially what Paul is saying is the law is made for those that aren't righteous. And guess what? That would be everyone <laughs> if you're willing to acknowledge it. So the law is made for those who are willing to acknowledge that they're not righteous, that they've got issues, that they've got a need for God. And if you're not willing, well, maybe the law is not for you. Luke 5, 31 through 32 says this. Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If you can't identify with the sin in your life, with the sin that plagues you, then you can't identify with the God who wants to save you from it. It's so important that we recognize our need. And each and every one of us in this room—we're lawbreakers and rebels, we're ungodly and sinful, we're unholy and unreligious—in some element of our life, we were at some point in time. I guarantee you. Even if you were raised in the church and you thought, "There, sin has lurked in our in our hearts and has corrupted the human nature," and so we, every single one of us, are desperate need in need of the law, so that we may discover a righteousness that's outside of our works. So that we wouldn't spend our life doing the paddle thing, but we could have our sails lifted to a God who wants to overcome our inability to do enough work to be righteous. Now, Paul also says this, and this is controversial in the modern time for whatever reason. Paul says this. He says the law is good when used properly. You know that the Bible has got an Old Testament and a New Testament in it. And the old is actually good, and it doesn't contradict the new. See, you guys says yeah, say so, yeah, but a lot of people don't believe that. They just love to stick to the stuff, the passages they really like. You know, um, not just even the old versus new. I, I call it what I have a name for it. I forgot my own name for it. Um, trail mix, trail mix uh, Bible reading. You know, you, you just you eat the M and M's, but you leave the the you know the cranberries and the nuts. Which if you have a nut allergy, it's probably a good idea, but, but you get what I'm saying. You, you pick out the stuff that's really tasty and good and sweet, but the things that you don't want to read, you just skip right over. <laughs> that's not for me. That's for my neighbor. Um, but really, that's, that's how so many of us read the word, and we, we do it without even thinking twice. But Paul is saying, no, the law is good. The, old, the law talking about the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the Ten Commandments specifically that lay out the, the, the things that we're supposed to abide by, the morals of society. And he said, no, that's actually good. It's good when what? When used properly. Yeah. And we'll get to the proper usage of the law. Now, Paul was an expert in the law. He said he called himself the Hebrew of Hebrews. He said he was zealous for the things of the law. And as for righteousness based on the law, Paul says he was faultless in Philippians 3. So when he was a Pharisee before he met Jesus, he was by the book. He knew this book and he was going to hold you to this book. And, and, and so I think Paul's a pretty good authority on the purpose of the law. I think he's a pretty, I I don't think we should think we know more than Paul when it comes to the law and how to apply the law to our lives, because this guy knew it through and through, and once he met Jesus, he learned how to use it properly. So what can the law do? We're going to go to a a slide on that. The law can do a couple things. Um, The law can reveal what's right versus what is wrong. That's why it stings sometimes to read it, and we want to throw out some of it. The law can convict you of personal sin in your life. You ever read the Bible, and all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, I feel really bad now. Sometimes that's an unhealthy feeling, but sometimes that's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That's the word cutting you, and you want it to cut you. So just because you feel that, don't just think it's always guilt and shame and condemnation. It can be the conviction of God to strengthen and encourage you and to keep your life on the right track. It's not always bad. I think sometimes we just... We, we can associate that with, with negativity, and it's not always negative. In fact, this is what the law is meant to do. Romans 7, 7 explains this a bit. This is Paul writing to the Romans. Here's what he says. What shall I say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would have not known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet that's one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not covet. If the law didn't tell you that that was wrong, you might not have known it was wrong. Now that you know it's wrong, now what are you going to do? Well, that's one of the problems with the law, <laughs> and we'll get to that. So the law is good because the law exposes sin, but it has a different effect as well. We're going to go to Romans 7, so same, same chapter, verse 10. going to skip a few verses up, and Paul says this. He says, I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me. And through the commandment, put me to death. Well, that doesn't sound like the law is good. The law is putting me to death. So then the law, here's what he says, is holy. And the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. So the law is holy, it's, the commandment's good, it's righteous, but it's having an impact on me that's leading to death. Why? Because the wages of sin, Paul says this as well in Romans 3, are death. The wages of sin is death. We don't even like talk about sin. We don't even like that word. It's such a stigma around that word. But if if there's sin in your life, if if you have sin in your life, it will lead to your death. And without an intermediary without somebody to cover you from the sin that every single person every one of us has sin in our life without some intermediary you are going to be corrupted by that sin and you cannot actually find yourself in connection with God your connection with God is severed because of sin sin is a wicked dark terrible thing that has plagued the human heart and somehow people don't want to talk about it we should talk about it because it, it's 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 the disease, it's the cancer of the soul that's destroying each and every one of our lives. So, wouldn't you want to know the thing that's trying to destroy you and kill you and separate you from God? Well, that's sin. And sin is disclosed by the law. But what can the law not do? We're going to put the next slide. The law cannot give you the ability to obey it. You can know it, but you can't obey it, it doesn't give you that sort of power. You just know about your sin. You know about your separation. The law cannot cleanse you of your sin. So you you can become very aware. And I spent a summer in this awareness. It was like kind of terrible, honestly. It was like a whole summer where I was like reading a lot of scripture and I was just so aware of all the sin in my life. And I was kind of like petrified and like like had analysis. I had sin and I had sin paralysis. Like I, I just like. It was just shut down by, you know, hanging out with God. Like, wow, like I've got so many things to work on with you. And um, you know what I'm talking about? Like, if you read too much of the Bible, this can happen to you. Um, So, but, and I had a negative view of that. But actually, in retrospect, I'm like, I needed that because now I knew how, how saved I really was. Like, I need to have a sense of my wickedness, the sin in my life so that I knew that I've been delivered from it. And so the law can't deliver you from it. And the law cannot bring you into a right relationship with God. The law has many, many limitations. And how many know our friend Paul figured that out because he was well versed in the law. He followed it to the T, but it wasn't good enough. He was just paddling on the water. So the problem with the law is this. We try to use the law to obtain righteousness. That's a problem. We don't use it properly. We use it. To feel better, oh, oh I, I had a better week than this person, right? Like, I did these things. Look, I took my daughter on a camping trip. Look how great of a dad I am. Don't you wish you were so good? It's like we, we we, try we try to tick off these boxes and make us feel good about ourselves. When we do that, you're using the law incorrectly. The law is supposed to expose your sin, not make you feel better than somebody else, not make you feel less sinful. Well, at least I'm not that bad as that guy over there. But all you see is his Instagram. He's way worse than his Instagram account. I can guarantee you. I'm joking, but you get what I'm saying. So the law points to our inadequacy and our need for something beyond the law. If you're, when you read the Bible, if you don't feel a need for something beyond like the, the rules that you read, you're not reading the Bible properly. Like If you're trying to read the Bible just because you want to do everything in it right, that's not how you read the scriptures, because the scriptures are pointing to the solution of the scriptures. And his name is Jesus. He's what you need. The law leads you to the man who can solve the sin problem that the law cannot solve. That's what the purpose of the law is. Now, I've shared this story before, but I'll share it again for because it's, it's helpful. So Vanessa and I, as my wife, you know, while we were dating, I felt... So much guilt and shame with just the own sin in my own life. And, and I knew I had to come in and confess it to her. And so we arranged a meeting. And it was a very long meeting because I had a lot of sin to confess. And, um, and so we, we, you know, we had our meeting set up. And I remember just being so worried going in like, how is this going to go? Because I'm basically going gonna, gonna to lay out my sin. Like I'm feeling guilty about this and I'm, I'm going to put it on the table. And this is a woman I want to marry. So we're going to see real quick if this is going to work out. And uh, I highly encourage this, by the way, when the relationship is in the right place, um, not prematurely. But anyway, <laughs> come to the relationship class and we do it again. But so I go before her. Right. And I start listing off. And, and some of it's sin against her. Right. It's sexual sin. Let's just be honest, sexual sin in my own life where where I came up short and I have to I have to tell that to her. And, and let me tell you, like it, it stung. And so I remember going line by line, reading off all my stuff and every time i would share it with her she would say i forgive you and i would share the next thing i, I hear you i forgive you and it was like that was like layer by layer i was getting restored i i i, I like like I couldn't change what I I couldn't change. Like this, it it just happened, right? This has happened. I that's a problem with sin. It stains you, and you can't get it off. It's a stain that you can't run through the laundry, right? It's a stain that is irreversible, and it disconnects you from God permanently. And so you need forgiveness. You need you need healing and cleansing by the blood, or else that stain's not going anywhere. And it was like I was having that moment where I'd already received Jesus and, and felt the forgiveness that he brings me, but it was like I was reliving that with Vanessa because here I was bringing my sin to the table and just hearing, you're forgiven, you're loved, you're forgiven, you're forgiven. And so I, I was just getting the grace of God being poured out on me in the midst of this conversation. And it was it, not just that, but at the end of all of it, right, at the end of confessing all this sin, then Vanessa came to me and she's like, you know what, I forgive you, I forgive you. And you know what else? I still want to marry you. I want to marry you. I want you to hear the Lord saying that to you today. When you feel the conviction of your sin, you're going to run to a God who cared so much that he bled and died and took on that sin. And he's going to say, you know what? I'm glad you came to me. I'm glad you repented because I want to marry you. That's why I shed my blood. That's why I died so that we could get married. And now that you've confessed these sins to me, now you're going to know that you're forgiven. Yeah. And so it's, it, it, it's, it was this moment that I had with Vanessa that reminded me of this moment I've already had with Jesus. But how many of you know we need a fresh reminder? Yeah. Especially when we're in the law, especially when we're just feeling the conviction. Don't hide from the conviction. Lean into it. Because on the other side of it, you're going to experience a God of love. But you've got to come to him with your stuff. And we have to let his word cut through us. I'm going to read this uh, quote from John Piper real quick. It says says this, Law keeping doesn't get your verdict changed when you are guilty. How many know each and every one of us are guilty? I came before Vanessa guilty of all the things that I said to her, which we are. Only Christ crucified and risen, only his perfect righteousness, his atoning blood shedding, his death, Can turn the verdict around. The law can't turn it around, but Jesus can. But you gotta come to Jesus. It's not it's not enough just be like, well, I, I serve a God of grace, He'll cover me, He's good. You gotta come to Him. You gotta do the thing that I did with Vanessa, you gotta bring your stuff before Him. See, we need more than the law. We need a clean conscience, we need a pure heart. And Jesus' blood and his death. It ushered in our when we receive him, we get the Holy Spirit. He comes and cleanses us and he comes and gives us that pure heart. We need to walk out a life that's free of sin, a wife that is truly free. He produces the transformation in the human heart that we need to live a full life. Galatians 322 says this. It, it tells us that the law was our guardian, right? The law kept us guard until what? Until Christ came. So when Christ came, we become justified by him. We have our faith. We, are now, we now live by faith in Jesus, and we're not, we don't have to be guarded by the law. But the law is still good. The law is still purposeful. So while we now have faith in Jesus, we're now under the guardianship of the law. We still need the law. It's, it's not a bad thing. Now, Jesus actually changes how we relate to the law a little, actually a large bit. Um, Matthew 5, 17 says this, says, Jesus came not to abolish the law. No, he didn't come and just say, hey, I'm setting things up totally different now, you guys. Don't worry about reading the Old Testament. Don't worry about these commandments. I got it. No, Jesus knew the entire Old Testament. He knew all the commandments. And he said, I came to fulfill it, not abolish it. He came to fulfill the law. That's Matthew 5, 17 through 19. And Jesus's idea of fulfillment of the law Check it out in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. It's not to lower the standard. He actually up the standard of the law. He actually says, hey, even if you look at a woman lustfully, that's adultery. And the disciples are like, what? Like, <laughs> I thought it was just acting on it. He said, no, actually, I'm here to fulfill the law. Just looking is enough to condemn you. And, and so he goes through all the, a, lot of, a lot of these points in law, and he gives them the fulfillment of it. How many know that Jesus also overturned the sacrificial system? So we do read in the law this need for purification and, and all these sacrificial elements, right? The, the killing of animals for the shedding, to, to, for the fulfillment of our sins. We no longer have to do those sacrificial systems because Jesus fulfilled the law. But guess what? The moral code in the law, it still stands. And Jesus validates that in his word that this moral code is, hasn't gone anywhere. In fact, the moral code is higher than it was before. And the disciples said, How can we do this, Lord? <laughs> they said, How is this possible? And he's and Jesus is reiterating, No, it's by it's by my blood. Yeah. No, 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 don't it's not by your works. You're thinking in the old covenant, but in the new, it's by my blood. So you will feel the conviction, but I've come to give you life and life abundant. And I've come that sin may not abound in you, but that my grace may abound in you. Yeah. First Timothy chapter one, verse nine. We're gonna keep reading. So I'm going to backtrack just briefly here. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and the sinful, the unholy and the irreligious. And here he starts listing. He gets real specific, all right? This is the one people want to just jump over because he gets specific. For those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God with which he entrusted to me. So I think, I think what Paul is doing and what commentators think is he's actually taking the sins that are, being, that are plaguing Ephesus and he's identifying them. But he's doing it in a very intentional way. If you look at the things he listed here, those who kill their fathers or mothers, um, that's in alignment with the fifth commandment, honor your parents. Look at the next one. For murderers, that's the sixth commandment, do not murder. Sexual, immoral, and those practicing homosexuality, the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. Slave traders, that's the eighth commandment, do not steal. Liars and perjurers, that's the ninth commandment, do not give false testimony. So he's going commandment by commandment and saying, this applies to today. And let me get specific about the the issues that are happening in Ephesus. I want to challenge these things that are happening because they're not based on sound doctrine. And they're eroding the church. They're eroding your ability to be salt and light. They're eroding your ability to be my face on the earth or the face of Christ on the earth. And so Paul is getting very specific and telling Timothy, you have to teach word You have to teach healthy, sound doctrine. You can't shy away from the Ten Commandments. It is relevant. It is needed for the church in Ephesus, for the church of New York City to thrive in the time and the season that God's planted us in this city. It's needed. And so he gets very specific. And he warns against idolatry and sexual morality more than any other thing in the New Testament. It's funny how lax, it's not funny at all, but it's, it's odd how lax the church has become, right, the church at large, about sexual immorality when Paul is warring against, against this more than almost any other sin. He's saying, this is problematic. Let me tell you, if, if Paul thought it problematic, if, if the spirit of God that inspired the scriptures thought sexual morality was problematic, you and I should probably consider it problematic. But instead, we're taking cues from the culture. Instead, we're allowing our theology to be driven by the culture around us instead of connected to the scriptures, connected to who God is and who he made us to be. See, sexual morality is not a secondary issue. It's not. And if you you don't take it serious, I'm telling you, you're going to miss the things God wants to do through your life. You're going to miss it. If we have a good and loving father... Right, Bill preached about this last week. If that's true, if God really is this good and loving father that cares about us and knows the very details, the very makeup of our life, if that's true, then when God says don't do something, when he says these are my commandments, don't break them, how many know that that breaking those things is going to hurt you? Like, because he cares for you. He cares for the, if I tell my kids not to do something, I'm not trying to keep them from having fun. And and it's not because I don't understand the details of their heart. Maybe actually, maybe I do, but God doesn't, right? I'm trying to understand the details of an eight-year-old girl's heart. It's kind of hard. But (laughs) God understands you. He made you, he formed you in your mother's womb. He made the details of your life. And you think he's going to tell you something because he's trying to keep something from you? No, he's going to tell you something to keep you from harming yourself to keep you from living a life that's less than what he died for. That's why he's going to tell you these things. So I'm going to talk briefly about, about homosexuality. Um, it's, it's listed here. And, you know, I think, I think first the first thing, just to, be, just to be frank, is I think the church has been, we've really lacked, we've lacked the right heart in, in many respects um, around this topic. And I think we've hurt our ability to speak into it um, because of the lack of sensitivity around it. Notice it was listed in this whole list of other sins, right, um, this whole list of, of, of items that Paul's pointing out for the church of Ephesus. Um, so we've, we've stigmatized it a bit and made it its own thing um, versus something that it's like any other sexual immoral sin. Like, it is a sin, yes, but it, it's one of many. And so I think we do well to acknowledge that as a church at large. But we have to also acknowledge that we, we cannot unmoor ourselves from the scriptures, The scriptures are who God is, and they're inspired by God, and they help us to live a right life, and help us to live a full life. And the scriptures wholeheartedly reject homosexuality. They they clearly state, and there's really no way to getting around it, honestly. If you believe the scripture, the inspired word of God, it's very clear. There's not a single scripture that has a positive view of homosexuality. Not one. Every single one, from Leviticus to Corinthians to Romans to what we just read, they all have negative views. Every single one. And so, so it, the scriptures outright condemn the behavior. They, they, they say it's wrong. And everybody believed that until like yesterday. Like 2,000 plus years, it was believed um, that homosexuality was, was not natural. It was not the way God designed men and women. And so we have to just keep that in context instead of creating new doctrine based on the culture we live in. So the Greco-Roman culture at that time had truly had mixed views on homosexuality. I studied it a little bit, and they they weren't willing to say it was fully wrong. But the Jewish text that we read, that the scriptures, outright spoke against it. And so so essentially what Paul is writing here, he's agreeing with the Jewish tradition in, in, in First Timothy, and he's also standing against the culture. It's not like this was a new idea. People were accepting of it. And Paul's saying, you accept it. But my God does not like this is not how you were made. This is unnatural. And so so once again, it's I know it's a dicey topic. I know there's a lot of controversy around it, Um, but the word of God is clear. And and we're here to to preach the word because the word of God tells us who God is and tells us how we were made. So I want to just pick up one argument that some bring about about the Bible and homosexuality. There are many different ones. Um, which I'm happy to talk further about. But one particular that I think is worth mentioning, um, there are revisionists out there that argue that the scriptures, um, or they want to refrain the scriptures, they argue that it doesn't outright condemn homosexuality. And the position that they take is they say, well, there, there's a, it's a term called cultural difference, right? The cultural There's a cultural distance. There's a distance between our world today and the, and the biblical world that was lived in. And so they say, well, you can take all these references in Leviticus or what, what I just read to you, and, and you can... If you really look down at the details, Paul is not talking about homosexuality as we see it today. And and that's the argument that they make in a nutshell. Um, But the reality is, if you look through the historical documents, if you look through, like if you look at even outside sources like um, Philo of Alexandria and different texts, you recognize in the Greco-Roman world, it was very known, like homosexuality was a very prevalent thing. It's not like it's a new idea. And there was many different forms of it. So while there was... There was some real, which exploitative, homosexual activity. There was um, pedastery. I mean, there there was there was definitely some some unhealthy activity that maybe goes beyond what we see now. Um, in, In the the reality is, they were aware of all different forms, and so even though you can't equate perfectly like the same-sex relationships we have now with back then, you also can't equate anything that we have now with back then. Marriage is different, family life. There's always some level of nuance. But when you read the text, and I I encourage you to read it for yourself, I think you'll find that it's very clear what the Scriptures have to say. And so we want to make sure we're, we're letting the Scriptures inform our life, not the culture inform our life. I think culturally, one of the challenges we have today is that sexuality is so tied to identity. We are an overly sexualized culture. It's really, it's really insane. We live in this hyper individualistic age, and it influences our theology way more than the scriptures do. Is the reality? Um, I want to read this quote. It's by this guy, um, Carl Truman, and. If you could put it up on the screen for me. He wrote this book. I really encourage you to read it. I I read it. It's called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And it gives gives us a little context for the world that we live in um, so that we can, once again, understand truth versus lies, understand understand kind of the the water we swim in, if you will. Here's what he has to say. Um, He says, the intuitive moral structure of our modern social imaginary prioritizes victimhood sees selfhood in psychological terms, regards sexual tradi- traditional sexual codes as oppressive and life-denying, and places a premium on the individual's right to define his or her own existence. All these things play into legitimatizing and strengthen these groups that can define themselves in such terms. They capture what one might say, what one might say is the spirit of the age. See, this world, there's a premium on an individual's right to define his or her own self. And that's what I would define as a hyper-individualistic worldview, which essentially just means it's all about you. It's all about self. It's all about how you see you. And how you see you is your truth, and it's a great injustice, according to the culture, if I were to challenge that. Because how you see you is the is is highest form of justice in society. And I can tell you, God wants to war against that on so many levels. Not because he hates people or wants to condemn people, because that idea destroys people. Any good parent would never teach their children that whatever they think of themselves is true of themselves. And even if you're in a different place on this issue, I think you'd agree with my statement. Children, just like us, Think up all different things. They have all these mixed different desires. It doesn't mean it's their identity. And in a sense, what the culture is telling you is whatever you think or feel, that's what you are. And don't let anybody tell you anything different. And it hurts my heart to see it. Because when I'm talking to you, I'm not talking about condemning or coming against these other people. I'm th- when I'm talking to you, I'm thinking about lives destroyed. Like I'm thinking about people who I know that have been ravaged by this ideology that is not of God and that is that is ultimately undergirding everything they hold dear and destroying their family and destroying their life. And so th- even as I'm really feeling this strongly, I, we have to catch God's heart in this arena. We're not just talking about hard laws. We're talking about a God who loves, a God who wants to... See people healed and whole. That's what we're talking about. God who came and died for everyone. Because of sin, many of our desires have been corrupted. And I... I want to encourage you today, if you're at a place, if, if, you're de- if you've dealt with same-sex attraction or you deal with it currently, I'm not condemning you at all. Like, in, in fact, I think that's what the church has done to, uh, and it's been a really, it's created a negative effect because it's demonized people that deal with that. And the reality is a lot of people deal with that. And the reality is it seems very much like this is just how I am. And so we need to be compassionate towards that. But at the same time, I would encourage you, don't agree with that as your identity. I beg you not to. Not because I think you're terrible, but because I think God designed you a different way. And I think we can all relate, right? We all have our struggles. We all have these things that are so pervasive, they feel like they could be us. But the word of God is there to protect it's there to encourage, it's there to comfort, it's there to build us up, it's there to point us to who we are. And so I say it, I want to say it in that term because too often it's been said in an angry sort of, um, with an angry tone, and that's not the God I serve. And that's not as hard for you either. I'm going to read, we're going to keep going. First Timothy chapter 1, we're going into verse 12. Paul here, Paul can connect with this struggle of sin in a way that really is beyond even what you and I probably have experienced. So 1 Timothy uh, verse twelve, chapter 1, verse 12 says this. I thank Jesus Christ, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Let's catch this. Even though I was once a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. See, Paul can relate to the sin we're talking about. The grace of our Lord, catch this, was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So Paul comes with his sin, with his stuff, right? And he... Admits he was a blasphemer, a pure, a persecutor, a violent man. Paul blasphemed the church. Paul came after Christians. Paul sat around and endorsed their death and and their um and even their their suffering. Um, Paul was all for he was he was on board with all of those things, and he was a violent man. And Jesus met him when he came to Jesus. Here's what his experience was: it says, "Great, the grace of the Lord was poured out on me." Abundantly. Don't, don't miss it. The grace of God was poured out abundantly over Paul. Even in the midst of his blasphemy, his persecution, his violence, his violation of the things of God, the defile things that he did. God saved him and poured out his grace on Paul. I'm going to keep going. First Timothy 15. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for this reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example to those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. He was the chief sinner. Paul called himself that the worst this is not hyperbole this is how paul saw himself and he said in the, even in that place god met him and poured out his grace upon him even in that place he met him because jesus came in the world to save sinners if you don't know you're a sinner then you don't know jesus came to save you because he came for sinners he didn't come for righteous folk He came for sinners, and Paul knows this better than anyone else, and he's saying, I was the worst, yet he poured out his love and affection on Paul. I don't care what you're dealing with. I don't care what you've done. I don't care if I read that list, and you can relate with every single thing. If you come to the Lord, he will pour out his grace on you. He will pour out. In Christ, the love and affection of God can be felt on the worst of sinners. I don't care what you've done. If you come to him, you will get under the flow of his blood. And you will get in the redemption that is not based on your work. It's not based on your paddle. It's based on the sails that Jesus rose when he died and rose from the ground. When he was resurrected, that, that's, the, that's the wind you're catching. It, it, it's the broken body and, and, the, and the, the life that was entombed and then raised to new life that gives you new life. That's what we're talking about today. Worship team, could you guys come on up? I mean, Paul was so humbled when he met the risen Christ that despite his sin, despite his shortcoming, he knew that he could obtain grace and mercy. You know, we talk a lot a bit. We talk a lot in in, in our church and other churches. We talk about, hey, you're a saint, you know. You're not a sinner. You're a saint. And we use some of that terminology. And I don't disagree with it in its entirety, but I do think, especially in the season we're in, in the culture we live in, we would do well to continue to d- define ourselves as a sinner. I really believe that because it doesn't take away our sainthood. In fact, I would say a saint is a redeemed sinner. But it, it makes us humble enough to not disconnect with where we came from or disconnect with the reality that we still sin. We still get caught up in sinful behavior. I think if you disconnect from that, you become kind of prideful, and you can, be, you can become prideful in a sense, and in a sense, you lose the ability for the word of God to convict you. You say, I'm, I'm a saint, I'm God's favorite, I'm God's beloved. All that is true. You're, you're also a sinner. You, you really are, and, and he met you in that place of your sin, and he's redeemed you. So you're a saint too, but let's be real. You're also a sinner. I think we would do well in the charismatic movement to continue to define ourselves by that term, knowing that we're saints as well. I'm strong enough in my sainthood that I can confess my sinnerhood. (laughs) And you should be too. I'm going to read this from Charles Spurgeon um Spurgeon's got a whole quote on this he's got he's got like all these sermons on uh Jesus around Paul as the chief of sinners like he he goes into this whole thing but I'm going to read you one little quote that he wrote it says this despair's head is cut off and stuck on a pole by the salvation of the chief of sinners no man can now say he is too great a sinner to be saved because the chief of sinners was saved 1800 years ago if the ringleader, the chief of the gang, has been washed in the precious blood and is now in heaven, why not I? If the worst of the worst, why not you and me? You know, sometimes we believe that when we come into the kingdom, but we forget that on a daily basis. We go back to paddling. We go back to trying to do the works Every morning, every day versus saying, you know what, even when I sin today, I'm going to go to him and find healing, find restoration, find salvation, find find all that I need for life and godliness. I'm going to find it in him today that daily we would experience this. I believe that is the Christian reality. It's almost like we get saved again every day. Even though you were saved, you already are saved if you've given your life to the Lord But every day you need his mercies to be new for you. Every day you need to taste that grace. And that's why you got to acknowledge your sin. Because when we repent of that sin, I believe we taste the grace in in its most pure form. (laughs) It's what I tasted that night when I confessed my sins to Vanessa. I tasted the grace of God, but I tasted it because I acknowledged the sin and I put it before him. Can everybody stand up for me, please? So Paul, in this whole thing I've been reading to you, he goes, he he really explodes in the thanksgiving. He kind of like, it's like he sings the song that we sang earlier today. Um, How, how's that song go? So good to me, God, I I don't want to sing it to you. God, I can't believe, I'm going to sing it now. How you love me. It's like he, it's like he starts singing that song in this verse. You have been, I'm going to sing it now. So good to me, God, I can't believe how you love me. I'm shameless. Sing well, But it's like he starts singing that in the scriptures. And he goes into his testimony. And he's still singing that song. I'm the chief sinner. But here I'm singing this song of thankfulness. And then he ends with this. It's like a doxology just put right in the scriptures. So this is his, the ending of his thanksgiving and his testimony is this right here. First Timothy 17. Now to the king eternal, to the king, immortal, to the king, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He's acknowledging there's a king above all whose word guards our life and whose and whose testimony is our testimony. But it's to that king, that eternal, immortal, invisible king, the only God. That's whom we stand before. We stand before him. He tells us who we are. He tells us where we're going. He defines the very details of our life. So God, I pray today that you would put things in perspective. Lord, that we would see today that we live before a king. We don't live before culture. We don't live before, we don't live before the, the people around us who we who we fear or who want to layer ideologies on us or who want to tell us who we are. We live before a king who is immortal and is fully loving and is eternal and whom we will stand before one day and give a testimony of our life. God, I pray you would put this in perspective today. Lord, I pray that we would have this healthy fear of the Lord that would come upon your people, that we would live differently in light of the God we serve, who is over all and sees all and knows all. Lord, I pray today that you would soften our hearts to hear this loving King, that you would define us, that you would be the thing that identifies our very nature. You know, there's this thing, people, you guys can start playing anytime, by the way. Um, <laughs> there's this thing where people, you know, they say like, hey, like, let's. we should pray the gay away. You, you hear that? Like, oh, like, you're, you're dealing with these desires. And you can apply it to anything. Because honestly, we're not just talking about, pray the whatever away. Pray your sexual addiction away. Pray your, pr- You you name it. It's not about praying it away. And we're a house of prayer, so I'm all about the prayer. I'm like, pray, pray, night and day, morning, noon, and night, do it. But it's not about praying it away. It's about getting a revelation of who you are in God. It's about seeing Him rightly. It's about getting caught up in who He is. You don't got to pray anything away when you, when you immerse yourself in His heart. When you see Him rightly and you realize... The God who's speaking to me through the scriptures, the God who gave me the word, the God who gave me his spirit. He tells me things. He convicts me of things because he loves me. And he knows me better than I think I know myself. Certainly better than those people on Instagram know me. Certainly better than even my friends and family know me. Those that would try to define you and tell you who you are. Let the word tell you, let the spirit of God in you tell you who you are. And that is going to come as a connection with his word, not contradictory to it. I really want a war this morning for some of you. Because I'm telling you, as a father in the faith, some of you, you've been, you've been, the culture has tried to lie to you. Tried to undergird who you are. And, and get you to agree with all sorts of things. Addictions and fears and lies and deceptions. And I believe the King of Glory wants to come in today. Not to pray it out of you, but to deliver you into his arms. That you would run to him and find a good and loving father, and find that you're actually a child. You're not an orphan. You're a child that's been specifically, wonderfully, and beautifully made. But you got to go to the Creator to know how you're made. You got to go to him to know what unlocks the things in your heart. So we're gonna pray. Um, a worship, or worship teams, are you up here? Ministry team? Could you guys go ahead and come up? If you guys could just line up back here. Father, I thank you for what you're doing. Holy Spirit, come and have your way in this place. God, come and come war against anything hindering love in our heart. Lord, I pray for, I pray for a, a spirit of repentance to come on us, God, that we would let the word cut us deep, Lord, that we would come to you, Lord, for freedom, for healing, for wholeness, for identity. God, that we would have our identity found in you. So come, Holy Spirit, come and cut through. Come and have your way in us. We hope you enjoyed the message. You can also follow us on Instagram at Life Center NYC or YouTube at LifeCenterChurchNYC. Church NYC.